Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, high scorers. Congratulations on your latest fantastic effort. Remember, you earned that. It's all down to your abundant talent and skill, and well done for that. And congratulations on your excellent choice of podcast today. You're clearly talented, skilled, and highly discerning. Welcome to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Here at TTWMD, it's not just any old average Tech Talk. This one is infused with pure, 100% undiluted Matthew Dickerson. And here to prove it, in person, is the man himself. How's your week been, Matt? Diluted version of me sounds interesting. Maybe my <laughs> wife would like a diluted version of me. She thinks I'm a bit full on sometimes. Just drink more water. <laughs> Maybe that's it. That'll dilute me. <laughs> so, yes, well, it is undiluted in all glory question yeah mark? that's right glory yeah why not we'll go with that <laughs> <laughs> all right um, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today um there's some stuff about uh a new dating app there i see that we've got a bit of stuff about chat gpt our regular talk about that and uh, some news about the iphones um iphone 15 as well mm, so, so a few things to, to chew our way through a lot to chew through so we're going to get straight into it today uh ever found yourself scrolling on your phone and then realize that you've just lost an hour of your life well, you can feel a little bit better about yourself because apparently, folks, that sort of time is just small potatoes. Internet addiction is a significant thing, and no surprises there. And if you, uh, sorry, if uh, a recent university research is anything to go by, it affects by far the majority of us these days. Matthew, put your phone down for a moment and feed us the gruesome details about how productivity is being lost on a daily basis. Is there some irony that people are using some form of technology to listen to this podcast and then we're talking about internet addiction? Yeah, but they can be busy doing something else with their hands while they're listening. Sure. It could be. Or yeah. they could be just dedicated their sole 100% focus on That's listening right. to this, but this is only... Sitting there staring at a blank wall. If you're doing that, maybe think about doing something else <laughs> maybe. rather than just staring at a blank wall. Listening. But at least this is only 45 minutes of their okay, week. Okay, that's right. Yeah, 45, so that's, not the full hour. That's Not the full hour and not the full... Many hours and many, many hours yeah, of look, day Yeah, look, an hour, week. as I said, is small potatoes compared to what is being wasted out there. And I think the big thing here is that we don't have a lot of data because the internet, the World Wide Web, if you like, you can say the birth time was maybe the 12th of March, 1989. There's a whole range of different dates that were put forward. But mm. you say 34 years-ish is the mm. sort of time. And back on the 12th of March, 1989, it wasn't as if everyone suddenly had the internet and everyone was using it, so <laughs> it took some time. So we don't have a long period of time to actually see how we're reacting to it. Yeah, I remember watching some like um, news broadcasts, um, sort of uh, morning show type news about people talking about this new internet that was coming in, and it was like mid nineties. Yeah, they were talking yeah, that's about. right. Yeah. So, so we've really only been exposed to it for a fairly short period of time in terms of the scheme of history and the yeah. term of our lives. But we're starting to see some trend and some may well say worrying trend. So the University of Surrey has been doing some work and they've created a new name for it because why not? Internet Addiction Spectrum. Mm. And they've created five different groups to put people on the spectrum from the casual users group through to the initial users, the experimenters, the addicts in denial and the addicts, the people who are just addicts. That's it, plain and well, simple. How many addicts in denial we've got here right now uh, listening to us? <laughs> well, you've probably got one sitting right here talking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm not addicted to it. <laughs> but the different groups, so they've done some work on this, and one of the things they found to start with, 
was the amount of time people spend based on age. If you're aged 24 or under, then you spend on average six hours a day online. So forget the hour that you just lost down that rabbit hole. Forget our 45 minutes for this podcast, six hours a day online. Now, those age 24... That's all doing homework though, isn't it? That's probably, yes, that's right, Right. for those 24-year-olds doing homework. (laughs) So those aged over 24... So that I think you and I just slip into that category. Yeah. 4.6 hours online. And I thought about that. I thought, gee, that's a lot of time. But then I started thinking the amount of times you access the internet. Oh, I've just got to duck down to the shop. So what time do they close today? I'll mm. look it up. Oh, I need to ring someone to see if they've got something in stock. I'll just look it up. No, no, mm. better still I'll go to their website and have a look if they've got that in stock. Oh, hold on, I'm using the internet. Where are we going for lunch? You know, I get caught out with, I wonder what ever happened to... Lee Majors, Steve right. Austin, the $6 million man. You know? <laughs> and I can lose myself for 10 minutes just finding out what he's up to. So you'd have to buy a new idea magazine to find no. out where are they now? No, no, no. <laughs> you go looking for them. <laughs> I always wondered what happened to the other half of Wham, Andrew Ridgely. Yeah. Because George Michael had a fabulous career. That's right. And Andrew Ridgely, very much a part of it at the beginning. So anyway, he's lived mm. a quiet life. And people go and look that up. Go for uh, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is a bit of a worry. Those hours you spend each day online is a bit of a worry, but when you get to some of these various groups, I'll ignore the first three groups. The people who are in denial, about 18% of the population, so that's a fair, and this is adult population, that's a fair chunk. So they manifest addictive tendencies, but they won't acknowledge that they're uncomfortable when they're offline. And I've Uh seen people like that on aeroplanes. You get on the aeroplane, some planes that don't have internet access, and you'll say good day, and they go, oh, and you can just see something's wrong. <laughs> What's wrong? Oh, I've got some stuff to do and I can't access that for the next six hours. Okay, that's all right. We're on a plane. Surely people understand. No, oh, and I've got to catch up some stuff. Well, this flight is going from midnight to 6 a.m. Surely it's okay in those time frames. I remember when I travelled to Indonesia once and my computer busted. It was a la- days when I was just using laptops, less, uh, much less phones. And, um, yeah, the, the laptop went on the blink and I just – the panic, the <laughs> – I was tense for three or four days. I was supposed to be on holidays. Well, maybe you're not in the addicts in denial. Maybe you're in the next category. Oh, no! 20, 22% of our population are straight out addicts as far as this survey is concerned. They recognise internet dependency and its negative impacts, but they do it anyway. <laughs> They're yeah. stuck with it anyway. Mm, and there. it is. It, it's an addiction. The same as you would have an addiction to alcohol or drugs or smoking. Yeah. It's something that you probably realise this is doing harm, probably realise you can't get away from it, but you can't just turn away. You can't That's look it. away. You, you're just stuck there. You've got to know what happened to Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> That's exactly it. We've gone from Lee Majors now to Farrah, all around the $6 million man and woman. Obviously, there's a focus from the 70s there. But there's some other ones as well. There was some work done by uh, another uh, university, another research project, Internet Addiction Test. And so that was a test to see whether you're addicted. I don't know whether, when it starts impacting your life, I suppose, that's an important part of the whole whole process. Mm. Whether you care what category you're in, whether it's important in the overall scheme of things, maybe, maybe not. But I can see this developing other mental health issues. I'm not an expert on mental health, of course, but I can see these addictions leading to other issues that might need to well, be addressed. I think if it's going to affect your sleep, if it's affecting you know other things that are important to get done, 
than um, yeah. Yeah, and the the interesting damage. part was as you went through those groups from the the casual users group right down through to the addicts, the age, the average age of each of those groups went down, and that kind of makes sense because mm. people that are casual users might not have grown up with the internet, might have had to read New Idea, and now they're accessing the internet, so that's fine. But the people who've grown up with it, so much younger. That's just been the way you access information. Keep in mind that, say, 34 years of the internet, if you're under the age, and again, take that might have been commonly used by the mid-90s, maybe early 2000s. So if you're 20, 25 years of age or younger, then that's just been the way you access information. Mm. None of this magazine, none of this free-to-air television type stuff where you've got to wait mm. for $6 million man to come on. Yeah. You just access stuff whenever you want it. out there looking for love and at your wits end with dating apps we found the solution and it's a new dating app called Cymatch but this one huh yeah this one is different because it uses a photo of your face and then some science to build your perfect match or to find your perfect match there I hope I didn't sound too skeptical about this and perhaps you may have heard my eyes rolling Matt it may be pertinent to tread very lightly here I actually think of my mum, and maybe mum was onto something here, maybe that should have been around when apps were being developed because she'd see a photo sometimes, maybe of a school group or just some people in a photo, and she'd look at me and she goes, oh, don't like the look of him. What's wrong? Oh, yeah. look at his face, Matt. You know, no, he's not very nice <laughs> at all. He's an angry person. Or something. Deep down inside. I, I don't something know. troubling him inside. <laughs> mum, <laughs> you, you can't say that, mum. You can't say you don't like the look of that. Well, no, look at them. It's obvious. So mm. I dismiss that. But now, if mum had been around in the age of apps, she might have been onto something because what you've got here is you've got a couple of people who've created an app. Now, they first took the idea from some research, in inverted commas, that was done by the Polytechnical University in China. And that research institute found that seven, or they found a 70% accuracy in predicting five personality traits from facial images. I'm not sure the sample size. Might have been right. five. Might, might, <laughs> be, might have been a small sample size. So these particular couple, or this particular couple that started SciMatch, then said, well, if you can predict personality traits from facial images, well, we should be able to do some matching we should be able to do some dating from that so we'll go and check out people's personality how outgoing they are how neurotic they might be how conscientious they are we'll base all of these different things on the look of their face and then we'll go forward and match up people based on that look as to who should be with each other mm. so i don't i'm a bit like you in terms of the, <laughs> in terms yeah. of the matching personality traits from the look of the face the only thing i think there might be some legitimacy in this is that sometimes people probably would look for a partner that does look similar to them. It's mm. probably something you see in a lot of couples where they are similar in a whole range of ways. Mm. So maybe having people that look similar, hey, there's forget about the science in inverted commas that's happening here with personalities. You two look pretty similar to each other. We'll match up the looks. And so your other potential partners on our dating app are the people that just look like you. It's plain and simple. I'm Maybe. still sceptical. <laughs> We've been doing this since the mid-80s, with, oh, well, probably before then, with uh, shows like Perfect Match, and they had Dexter who'd run it through <laughs> his computers and it was all scientifically based and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I still remain sceptical. And it's, it's um, I don't know, I, 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 this feels like pseudoscience to me. Uh, oh, absolutely. I agree with you entirely. Good. Thank you very but I, much. But I do wonder about the, the look. I just wonder whether yeah. people that look similar, 
there was something someone that was taught to me when I was doing presentations. I used to do a lot of presentations around the world years ago, and I was working out how to dress for different audiences. Should I wear a suit? Should mm. I wear a casual T-shirt or whatever? And there was some training I was doing one time and they told me the best way to dress is to mirror your audience as closely as possible. Mm. So if you're going to present to a bunch of solicitors or accountants that are dressed in three-piece suits, dress in a three-piece suit. If you're going to address a bunch of mechanics that might be wearing casual clothes, T-shirts, that sort of thing, polo shirts, mm. then dress in a polo shirt. And I thought, yeah, that's good advice. That makes sense. So you, you're trying to make it feel like you're one of them by at least looking similar. And maybe from a facial perspective, you, you meet someone else that looks similar to you, you go, oh, well, maybe we've got something in common. We look the same as each other. Yeah. There's a starting point. So it's <laughs> the more I talk about it, the thinner it sounds. So <laughs> I'll stop talking now. I think we'll give up on that one. Well, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see how Cymatch goes and see the success that it runs um, using AI to match faces. And um, I'd love to hear a bit of feedback from people because, yeah, Cymatch, S-C-I-M-A-T-C-H, it's free at this stage. I think there's some add-ons you can pay for, but why not give it a go? If you're in the dating game, give it a go. And scientifically proven, they tell me. Is that right? No. Mm. <laughs> whenever I whenever I hear those two words going together, I just think, oh, they're selling. <laughs> That's right. There's some snake oil there somewhere. <laughs> celebrity is that when you're really well known, people just expect to see your face out and about endorsing products and, and they ask no further questions. For the marketers, that face can be worth loads and loads of dollars and for the celebrity, not only is their income, but also a direct association between them and the product. So in this new age of AI generated images, there's a massive concern for celebrities about stealing their images for advertising and it's gotten Tom Hanks's knickers in a knot just now, hasn't it, Matt? If I said movies like Saving Private Ryan or Forrest Gump, Da Vinci Code, Castaway, Apollo 13, Philadelphia maybe, mm. people probably out amongst all of those, they'd probably be able to recognise somewhere in there that Tom Hanks, the name Tom Hanks might come up if you said a few of those names. Mm. He's been involved with some pretty big movies over the years. He's got to be the A-list, uh, on top of the A-list, sure. He has, surely. So you, you throw a few and of those a really names. nice guy, apparently. Apparently, yeah. I haven't talked to him for a while, but yeah, apparently. <laughs> he's Let also, me look that up on my phone. Hang on. <laughs> he's also produced some movies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you think out of all of those movies, some of those hits there, he's probably been able to bank a couple of dollars. I mean, the mm. estimation might be 400 mil he might mm. be worth. So it does seem strange that you've had that level of success. You've got a few dollars in the bank, enough to get you by at least till next Sunday, mm. to then say, oh, you know what? I need to go out and use my face to sell dental insurance because that's what I need well, to top up the bank account. In that case, it'd have to be something he really believed in. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. So it's less insurance. about the money and more about making sure people get onto this dental insurance. And maybe he has a passion for dental insurance. Yes, could be. <laughs> or maybe, as Tom has come out and said, this is just deep fake technology. So that's mm. exactly what's happened. They've used Tom Hanks. Why not? Just looking at some of those movies there's going to be very few people in the world who don't recognise Tom Hanks. Mm. And so if Tom Hanks tells me that this is the dental insurance plan to be on, mm. well, why not? I trust Tom Hanks. He seems like a very genuine guy. Mm. But again, this is the problem. And so Tom's come out and said, if you see some dental insurance ads, he's done well not to mention the company because he doesn't want to give them more advertising. Yeah. If you see dental insurance ads, it's not me. It's a deep fake. And then use that to really talk about the issues that he has around the scared process going forward for many people about where AI is going, 
where deep fakes going. See, that's the thing. If he takes them to court, he's giving them publicity that they're probably looking for. I was wondering, you know, surely they, they would have known that there was going to be legal action there. Well, possibly. But, and again, I don't know that I would if I was Tom worry about it. I think what he's done is probably a good approach to say, yeah. this is not me. I'm not going to mention the company. If you see Dan Insurance says it's not me, they're being very dodgy. In fact, that should discredit that company more than mm. anything else because they've done something without Tom's mission. And Tom's almost like the the kid next door, the boy next door that you yeah. trust and have faith in. So, hey, you've done the wrong thing by Tom. We don't yeah. like you anymore. <laughs> That's it. It's going to work against them. But uh, the um, the actor, uh, I think it's Anil Kapoor, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, could he, he was in no. Slumdog Millionaire, but he actually oh, right. yeah, yeah, he okay. took them to court for using his image and basically went through a process there where he sued uh, whoever it was, whatever company it was, for using his image without permission in some form of deep fake. Mm. And you see other ones. I've seen Bear Grylls. I've seen Elon Musk. I've seen mm. various other deep fakes. Well, I assume they were deep fakes because they were saying silly things that maybe you wouldn't expect some of those people to say. So this is an issue. And so Tom's really trying to highlight that. The Hollywood strike is highlighting this issue. The Writers Guild of America strike, which I think they've now reached an agreement with. But all of these uh, concerns from people, whether it be actors, whether it be writers, about this whole concept of deep fakes mm. and how convincing it is. I mean, when we did our 100th episode, we did a little bit of deep faking for yeah, our that, voices. That yeah, and apart from the American accent, as you pointed out at the time, it was pretty close to our voices. Yeah. And that was with five minutes with a free service. I mean, if you've got someone who's serious about it, it's a bit of a concern. So now you've got to actually go that step further and say, does it really seem like Tom Hanks would be saying that? There was a, a German tabloid that did a fabricated interview with Michael Schumacher. Now, Michael Schumacher, seven times F1 champion. He's in a, well, we don't really know, but we know he had a brain injury from a skiing accident. Presumably he's in a coma. His family's been very private about his recovery, if there is a recovery there. But this German tabloid did a fabricated interview. They didn't say that. They said interview with Michael Schumacher. Had the interview published at the end, it said this interview was generated by AI. Now, their family is suing that particular tabloid. But again, if you saw an interview with Michael Schumacher, wow, we haven't heard from him for yeah. all those years. Gee, I'll go and pick up that magazine and read that. And again, this is where people are going. There, there just seems to be no common decency anymore, James. Am I getting too old now? I'm talking about common decency. I, oh, that makes me sweat a little bit too. Yes, common decency, um, just respect for a fellow man. Yeah. Just, yeah, just that's gone out the window. None of that at all. So all of these things there, I suppose it's just one of those things you've got to be a bit sceptical. You've got to question it. You've got to say, does that seem real? Does that seem legitimate? Mm. Just do the right thing, please, people out there. Question everything. <laughs> the lines between human physiology and robotics, exosuits have been in development for several years now with prime applica applications for heavy lifting and injury re rehabilitation, easy for me to say. But for true fans of Steve Austin, the $6 million man, there he is again, exosuits are now being built to enhance running speed as well. Matt, the Olympics are going to need a whole new category of events now. We'll be sued by Steve, Lee Major soon <laughs> for Timmy mentioned six million dollars. In a positive way, surely that would be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm convinced this is my chance, James. The Olympics, I, I never really had a target of making it to the Olympics, but now I can see technology being mm. used, and maybe this is it. So this is your shot. This is it. Usain Bolt's two hundred meter nineteen point nineteen seconds is under threat. Yeah, I think right. from me <laughs> with an exosuit. So the idea here is that, as you said, a lot of the times these exoskeletons have been used for some form of rehab for mm. trying to help people 
actually like spinal injuries and whatnot. Yep. Yeah, just be mobile to start with. This is going a slightly different direction, saying let's take people that are fine, they're okay, they're not Olympians, but they're fine. Let's put one of these on and see whether or not it can make them run faster. In their initial experiments, now very small sample space, I must say, they had nine people. They said go and run two hundred meters, pretending you're running against Usain Bolt, and go for it fast as you possibly can. Now, you're not going to run 19.19 seconds, but average people, I'm not sure, they might do 30, 35 seconds mm-hmm. for, for an average person. So go and do that. And now, put this 4.4 kilo backpack on. We're going to attach some little cables to your hips and to your knees. And now, go and do it again and run it a number of times. And they found, on average, that people were taking 0.97 of a second off the running time. Off their own running time. Wow. Now, there was some discussion about was this a placebo Usain effect? Bolt puts these on. <laughs> that's right. Well, he that's breaks a, the sound barrier. <laughs> that's stage two, maybe. But but there was a potential discussion about placebo. But I still think if you're going to strap 4.4 kilos on your back, mm. it's got to be a pretty good placebo. In other We're words, you do more work because work is force times distance. And you've got this extra weight to carry. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, I thought maybe it was someone going, oh, I've got this on now, I better run faster. But I don't, I don't care how much extra motivation you've got. No. When you've got that 4.4 kilos on your back, you're probably not going to do it. So there had to be some effect from this. The next step then was they're developing a new version of this. That one was basically take the average runner, go a bit faster. The new version of this, which is a smaller pack, 2.5 kilos, they're talking about now doing training for elite runners. So now put it on Usain Bolt's back. And what it does is it just engages your muscles slightly differently and you become accustomed to running that bit faster, take it off, and in the early tests so far, they're finding elite runners are improving their times minuscule amounts, but improving their times nonetheless by doing training with this. Is it illegal? No, you're not running with it in the actual race. Maybe some athletics association somewhere will say, sorry, you can't even train with that. Who knows what will happen down the track? Mm. Excuse the very bad pun there, which I didn't even realise. <laughs> unintentional pun. Uh, but I think there's some interest there in what you might be able to do when you start to get to the stage where you can put these on. And, and battery development is one of the real keys here yeah. because batteries, you're finding so much more energy that you can pack into a small battery. If you go back 20, 30 years, you would have had to strap 20 kilos on to get five minutes out of it, but now they're getting much better. So do we really need this? Do we really need to get elite runners to be able to train a little bit better? Yeah. (laughs) There you go. There's your answer. (laughs) Through the whole story there, all I could hear in the background was the the theme song for $6 million too, by the way, and the the sound effects that go with that. Yeah, the... Must have been annoying to be Steve Austin in that show. Yeah, that following around, and... And things happening in slow motion all the time. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> For anyone that hasn't watched Six Million Dollar Men, you've got to go. You've got homework. At least watch one episode now. Earbuds have been a revolution in personal entertainment. Wireless music pumped straight into your auditory canals. Totally unencumbered. They're a great item for a workout without flapping wires getting in the way. Well, a new breed of earbuds have been developed and their job is actually to tune into your brainwaves to read into a whole new set of health metrics, Matt. 
have we just gone crazy with wearables? We love them. <laughs> this is just every every week just about we're doing a new wearable story, and this is no different. This has been done by the University of California, and engineers have got these little tiny flexible sensors, essentially screen printed on, that you then wrap around normal earbuds. So you put the earbuds in, you listen to your music, whatever you might want. So you can still listen to music. You can still do your normal thing, listen to this podcast, for example, and all they're doing is they're a convenient way to have something attached inside your ear, and then it uses the same process that an earbud uses. It connects back to a phone, and then it does a couple of things. It transmits information about lactic acid or about lactate that it picks up in your sweat. So it can detect activity. So you're building up lactic acid, you're getting a little bit of that coming out in your sweat, so it can detect that. But it's also picking up brain activity. So so it seems incredible to have this little sensor. Now, there is a electroencephalogram how to go there? Yeah, e- some e- people might say electroencephalogram, but right, yeah, you know, tomato, tomato. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Good, I'll get away with it then. So it's an EEG, and what that can do is basically work out brain activity. But that's strapped on like a little helmet. Mm. You probably don't want to do that while you go for a run. You probably don't want to do that while you're walking around the house. Look less cool. <laughs> look less cool. You've hit the nail on the head. Mm. It's form over function. Thank yeah, you very much. Right. So this idea here picks up the same sort of information that an EEG would pick up, but from some sensors inside your ear. Now, that's obviously good for people that might have had some brain activity issues. They might have had some brain seizures, for example, or they might just want to monitor stress levels. So anything they can monitor Mm. with an EEG, they can monitor now with these little buds in your ears. Add the physical activity on there. And so you can see stroke patients, for example, using this, go and do some physical activity. Let's see what's happening with your brain activity. A whole range of things. I don't necessarily see them being used by average runners to go, let's put them on and see how my brain's working compared to my lactate buildup and what might happen there in my physiology. It's probably more something to be used from a medical environment, but being able to monitor constantly, real-time, rather than come in to the surgery and put this helmet on, you can do that all day, every day. I wonder, yeah, uh, what advantage this is going to give to researchers of things like Parkinson's disease and uh, other forms of dementia, Um, yeah, and and, and developing a database that is going to give them further insight to be able to work with that. Well, that continuous health tracking, having yeah. things on your body that are continuously tracking those things and then seeing what you can do with that data. And I'm sure that some of these researchers create these, they come up with the idea, maybe we could go and look at these, and they don't really always know what's going to be used down the track. This data collection, someone later on says, whoa, now we've got all this data, it's that standing on the shoulders of giants. So someone else mm. created the data set, yeah. I'll now go and work out how we get more information out of this data set, and then away we go from there. So I think it's there's some potential there. I don't know all the ways it's going to be used, but it's quite fascinating what we're getting out of something so small that you can print it onto a sensor and stick it inside your ear. Amazing. A key limitation for ChatGPT up until now has been that its access to information was only up until September of 2021. Well... ChatGPT has busted out of its box and it's now up to date. It can now access the internet in real time. Matt, how's your doomsday bunker going? It is all about world domination for ChatGPT. I actually was quite comfortable with the fact that it cut out at September 2021, or if you had the subscriber version, it was January 2022, so you had a slight advantage of the subscriber mm. version. And I was okay with that. It was then useful for researching historical going back in time, looking at 
what year Six Million Dollar Man was introduced <laughs> and how many years it ran for, all of that information. And what Lee Majors is up to. <laughs> That's right, what Lee Majors is up to up until <laughs> up January until 22. That, that time, yeah, yeah. And I think that was okay, but one of the things that was being picked up by the owners of ChatGPT was that people were using it for that backwards-looking historical information, finding out about something, learning about something. But then when they'd want real-time information, they'd go and use an alternative such as a a Google search engine, of course, OpenAI, backed by Microsoft, they didn't want people going to Google. They wanted mm. people to use Bing, and that wasn't always happening. And sometimes when you look up something on ChatGPT, it would say, I haven't got access to real-time information. You should go and look up this on current articles, which was another way of saying, go to Google. And so <laughs> I don't think they like that. So they've now introduced, it again, the subscription-only version at this stage, and, and I subscribe to ChatGPT, so I've played around with this. And so now when you look at something and it says, gee, I think this person wants some current information – it does something interesting. Now, when you've got the known data set, when they cut off at September 2021, for example, they have got all this data they collect of all the information on the internet and they can do a bit of formatting. They can just make sure you're getting reliable data and then have a data set that can access very quickly because it's mm. already compiled to a certain amount. And you can also access that. that it's probably more reliable information. When you say go and get it today, there's a big difference. And some of the testing I did, I found this. If I go to Google and I say, tell me some current information, I'll get presented with lots of sites. Most people go to the first page only. But you can look at a few of those sites and you go, oh, no, that, that one looks like rubbish. Oh, that mm. one's not quite what I was after. Oh, here's mm. the one. That's the information I'm after. We're humans. We can still make those decisions and we're clever enough to do all that and to have that sort of process. Now, when ChatGPT goes and does the same thing, it's trying to gather all this information from current sites and then it's trying to summarise that because you don't want to have to go to different sites. Yeah. You just want the answer. But the summary that comes back, you can see, is filled with, well, not filled with, has potential to have information that's just out there that you know is wrong. If you looked at a Google search and you saw a certain page, you'd say, I know that's wrong. But ChatGPT mm. isn't quite clever enough to know it's wrong. So here's the experiment I tried. Yeah, right. It's just information and everything is just information. As far as it's and concerned, it's, it doesn't have any fact checking on that. have a little bit more instinct. I say some humans. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and said, tell me who won the NRL grand final in 2023. If I had have asked that question previously with the old version, then it would simply say, I haven't got access to that current information. Go and look it up elsewhere. But it didn't. This time it said, yes, Penrith Panthers won the NRL Grand Final. It gave me the score, the correct score, 26-24. It told me they beat the Brisbane Broncos. And they told me the date, 1st of October 2023. Mm -hmm. And it had the crowd figure, 81,947. So fantastic. Everything's going swimmingly at this stage. And then it said, fifth premiership for Penrith. And it was the greatest comeback in grand final history. Now, if I read mm. a news article and a journal had written something like that, the first thing I'd be thinking is, oh, really, by what measure was it the mm. greatest comeback? That's was it the least amount of time left at the end before they got in front? Was it the differential in the score? What was it? And I'm a bit curious. I wonder the last time the greatest comeback happened by whatever measure you're using, what was the previous greatest comeback? So it didn't give me that information. It just made that offhand comment, greatest comeback, a bit like when you're talking to a friend at the pub, oh yeah, that was the greatest comeback. Mm. Oh, what do you mean? How was that? So I went a step further and I said, can you please back up that statement? What do you mean greatest comeback? 
Mm. And that's when it all went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Your computer exploded. (laughs) Yeah? Because I think what would happen is, and and I'll give you a couple of examples of what it gave me that was incorrect, but there are people who have opinions. And and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for ChatGPT. Not everything on the internet is based on facts, Mm. but it assumes it is. (laughs) I know. So people out there have written stories saying, oh, this match I watched, oh, it was the greatest match ever, the greatest, what a great comeback. And so you get this information flooded in there. So what, what it did then when I said, can you please tell me more information? The first thing it said was, that Penrith overcame a 14-point deficit at halftime. Now, I'm proud that it didn't say, um, I'm not here for chit-chat, I'm off to go and make myself a sandwich. Or I'm off to go and watch more <laughs> Six Million Dollar Man episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so the greatest comeback, it said 14-point deficit it overcame at halftime. Now that's incorrect. Penrith were in front at halftime. They did overcome a 14-point deficit. So you can mm. see it's a little bit like the Alexander Pope poem when in Alexander Pope's famous poem from about 1711, he said, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrrhean spring. And we often use that when we say a little bit of knowledge. Teenagers, I often use that about. <laughs> My teenagers in particular, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. And so it was a bit like that with ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. It was like you knew a bit, you knew there was a 14-point deficit, but it wasn't a halftime deficit. And then it went further and it said that the greatest comeback before this was by Canberra in 1989, who overcame a 12-point deficit against Balmain. So again, Mm. close. They overcame a 10-point deficit in 989, but that wasn't the greatest. When you look further, and when I then went to Google, sorry, ChatGPT, to find (laughs) out the correct information, the greatest comeback was actually 1999, when the Melbourne Storm overcame a 14-0 halftime deficit to beat St George 2018. So... The, the comeback in 1989 was still a great match. And when I read articles mm. about that match, there were so many people who said, this was the greatest match ever. What a great grand final. Oh, what a great comeback it was. Mm. So you can see where it got a bit confused. Stitching stuff together. Yeah. And yeah. then it's taken all that and said, there you go. There's the answer. Now, the problem with ChatGPT is it presents this as the answer. I've asked someone that I trust entirely, ChatGPT, for the answer. And there it is. So when I'm down at the pub next time, I'm going to say to my mate, nah, Canberra, Balmain, that was the greatest comeback ever. That's Before this match, that was it. And someone who might know their rugby league goes, no, no, what about 1990? No, no, chat GPT told me. So mm. this is the thing now. Trusted we're, your own peril. That's, that's it. And this is the problem we've got now. You've got to actually just almost do a bit of fact-checking against chat GPT, yeah. which is a bit scary because you're trying to rely on that. So I don't know they've got it quite nailed for current information yet. Sure, it gives you current information. It gave me the current information about the NRL Grand Final. But anything further than that, any analysis, mm. and I wonder if I turned off my current search option on ChatGPT and just said, what's the greatest comeback in NRL Grand Final history? I wonder whether it would get it right then because it's done a bit more collation of that data from before the September 2021 cutoff. So in other words, ignoring the Bing search and actually going forward with the information that it has. I haven't actually tried that one yet, but I will now that I've talked about it. I'll go and try that one. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting. Current searching sounds great, but grain of salt needs to be applied. It's always struck me as odd that anyone would think that they had anything better than incredibly low odds of outrunning a police chase. Regardless of how good your driving skill or the performance of your car, even without a police chopper above your head, how well can you outrun the police radio? 
Be that as it may, police chases still happen, and I guess maybe sometimes the bad guys do get away. If the odds were poor to start with, they're about to get lower, because high-speed chase drones are now about to become a thing for cops in the US. Matt, do you reckon you could outrun a cop? (laughs) No way, not a chance. What about a drone? Well, even less chance of that, because at least in my cop getaway, when I've got police chase managers, say, radio... (laughs) setting up the scene (laughs) in my head right now. And thinking, wow, that'd be a sight to see. That's right, my little EV going for it. I reckon <laughs> I can accelerate away from them, but mm. I don't think I can go faster than three by ten to the eight meters per second, which no. is roughly the speed of those radio signals. Yeah. They're going to be going saying, he's just going down the main street, get in front of him and throw those little things on the road that yeah. they're going to run over. So I think you do see some examples where cops might stop the chase because it might get too dangerous. But you throw a drone up in the air, and that's exactly what this particular company called Skydio is talking about. It's a California-based startup. And they are using intelligent flying machines with people like the U.S. Army Mm. or organisations like the U.S. Army. So they're using them in some of those defence scenarios, but they believe there's an absolutely wonderful solution for law enforcement. Mm. They don't want the police who – the police have enough things to do now to then become skilled drone operators. But what they want is the police to carry drones with them. So if something does happen, a police chase, an active shooter, whatever it might be, they just pull out the drone and – throw it up in the air, and then it's controlled remotely by someone sitting back in a central office. Well, that, that's one of the problems with a, uh, a chopper as well, is, is it takes time to get the chopper pilot oh. the, and, and get that up in the air and get it to the right spot. That's right. Whereas if you're chasing, and and if the guy gets out of the car, then you throw up the drone, and the guys you can trace him through whatever backyard he's running through. That's right. You've just got that vision of it. You can follow it through. And the, the cool part about it is you've just got people sitting back somewhere centrally that are going to be following that drone along. It takes the risk for the police out of it because if you've got someone that mm. is an active shooter, sure, shoot the drone, go for it, good luck. I reckon you're a pretty good shot if you can do that. Yeah. But you're not going to have someone's life at risk by trying to shoot a police officer. It can read things like number plates from 250 metres away. So it could be 250 metres or maybe not 250 metres directly up, but might be a couple of metres up, for example, and then and it can read number plates. So they know they're on the right car. They can follow that correct car. Still a bit of an issue if you go into an underground car park, but you're kind of limit your exits then. You see in the movies people going underground car parks and that's yeah. the that's the play. In, in a police chase, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to an underground car park. <laughs> but then I'm in the underground car park and I realise there was one way in and one way out. So then the police just hang around at the exit mm. and then they go, we'll get him as and he comes out. Thing, to what degree can a drone just get itself through the underground car park? Well, probably not, but at least you know it's gone in and then you keep an eye on the whole building. But mm. a combination then, well, he's gone into this building Guys, go and sit off the exit, you're pretty well right. I think it's a great idea. We're going to see drones used in a whole range of different things. And there's going to be new skills. We keep talking about all these new skills you'll have. In this particular example, they use 5G on the drones themselves, and presumably it would drop back to 4G when required. And then you've got the Beyond Visual Line of Sight, the BVLOS clearanced operators, who are basically operating that in a bunker somewhere, mm. and they're using the technology to be able to fly that, and and that's a skill. So mm. you might have people with their pilot's licences or people with forklift certificates. You'll have people with their BVLOS clearances that can actually fly these drones when they can't see the drone. And that's a that's a big thing, a big difference between those amateur operators that have a drone in their backyard. You've got to be able to see the drone legally. You can't be flying that drone when it's out of sight. Mm. But if you've got your licence there... It sounds like a cool job to have. <laughs> 
<laughs> sitting in a bunker, flying drones yeah, around. Just flying drones and chasing people with them. Well, especially <laughs> when they're not armed, because I don't know that yeah. I feel that comfortable in some of the armed, and we're talking about some of the, the uh, armed forces now. Yeah. They've got some armed drones. And so you're sitting there in a bunker somewhere safe in your lounge room, maybe. You know, right. I'm sure they've got somewhere you go that you sit in that bunker and you're authorised then to fire upon someone it might be thousands of kilometers away so yeah i'm not sure that i love that idea but the idea of these where they're not armed because there was a company called axon who developed some taser armed drones oh wow but there was a huge backlash from the public so they kind of went "Mm, we mightn't go forward with that plan they might come out eventually but just being able to see and that's again here if you're I was going to say here, a, a criminal that's got half a brain, but maybe that rules out much of the criminal world. But surely if you're just watching that drone, even if it's not armed, you're probably going to say, gee, I've got police chasing me everywhere. I've got cars here. I've got this drone. At what stage do I just go, you know what? I've just got to give I'm up. Caught. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done for. <laughs> but I, I, look, I don't know if we'll see these in Australia anytime soon, but I guarantee that you'll see these in America at some stage very soon. Facebook's parent company, Meta, is adding AI tech into its machinery in a bid to give it an edge over the other social media platforms. Matt, what is AI going to add for Facebook customers? I think it's just sexy to say AI. This (laughs) podcast is done with AI. There you go. Look, it makes it all so much more interesting now. 73% of Aussies use Facebook. 63% use Messenger. 56% use Instagram. So when Meta makes an announcement that they're going to change some way of operation of their apps, then that affects a lot of Aussies. And that's exactly what will happen here. AI is mainly going to be used for images, for photographs at this stage, but things like removing the backdrop, changing the backdrop, restyling, putting filters on, unlimited filters. Forget about choosing which one of the 20 filters you want. It's now unlimited filters. And also adding images, a bit like Dali, which we've talked about before, Dali, where you type in a text version of something you want to see and it creates an image. That's exactly what you'll be able to do directly in these apps. Now, you want to send a particular photo that relates to the text that you're putting in, some post you're putting up, for example, then sure, just go and create it with the AI tools that are going to be built into these. Stickers, I can't believe, I'm not into stickers on on my social media, but there are hundreds of millions of stickers sent daily, apparently. I I must admit, I just haven't got the time to muck around with it, but maybe I will now, maybe, (laughs) using AI. Back in the old days when stickers were a physical thing and you'd have to peel them off and stick them on stuff, I used to to get like a a whole page full of stickers and you'd go, wow, look at all those stickers. And I wouldn't stick them on anything. I'd go, wow, look at those stickers. But I wouldn't stick them on anything because I think, oh, I don't know if I really want to see it stuck on that thing forever and ever and ever. And you don't want to waste a sticker. You've <laughs> you got you've got the sheet. Sticker. You only got one chance at each one. I had in my bedroom. I had a window that went. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like a very good arrangement, but went from the from the bedroom to the kitchen. Right. And so that window was painted over because you didn't want to be sitting there watching me sleep while, while you're having breakfast. And this is when I was growing up, obviously. And so that once it was painted became my sticker window, but only. Only the best stickers, James. Yeah, Only okay. the best stickers made it to that window. <laughs> you'd have to think about that sticker sheet and you'd have to go, oh, that's so important. So there's a fair degree of mental uh, anguish that goes with using stickers and that's why we don't use them anymore. Maybe that's mm. why we don't use them anymore or maybe that's why we don't use them in social media. In social media, yeah. That's right. But if you do use them, then you're going to be able to have access to create better Infinite. stickers. Well, yeah, Infinite. I, Infinite's a big 
concept, <laughs> but but I reckon it's pretty close to infinite, infinite minus one maybe. So, so essentially, this will just be another way of getting AI into everything. Now they've done a partnership with Bing, so that's interesting that Facebook or Meta and Microsoft, obviously Microsoft owns Bing, are joining forces somewhat because obviously Facebook could go along and say, well, we could do something with Google or do something with Microsoft. So they've gone the Microsoft way, and again, that'll allow you to access real-time information, and basically in within this AI tool, answer queries within your social media apps as you're using them. So again, everyone wants world domination, and mm. that's probably healthy that everyone wants it because maybe no one will get it, but this is where we're headed now. You've got BARD we've mm. talked about before. You've got AI built into your social media. You've got ChatGPT there. They're all competing for that same bit of real estate, and maybe they'll all come out with a reasonable product or maybe someone will win the game. Who knows? It's time to make friends with our digital overlords. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Please be nice <laughs> to us. <laughs> iPhone 15s have been pretty hot property, and it's nothing to do with the status of having the latest and greatest phone technology in your pocket. It appears that some apps have been causing iPhone 15 users, or units I should say, to cook a bit. Matt, an awesome accessory in your pocket on a frigid winter's day, but this is probably something for Apple to take quite seriously. Well, they are taking it quite seriously, and it's interesting because it's not just the iPhone 15. Oh, okay. What it's actually been shown is that when iPhone 15 was released, they released a new iOS, which is what they often do to take advantage of the new features of the new phone. Mm. And so iOS 17 came out. Now, if you had a reasonably modern version of an iPhone, so iPhone 14, iPhone 13, you could upgrade your phone to the new operating system. So users started noticing that not just their iPhone 15s were getting hot, but their older ones that have been upgraded were getting hot or using a battery a bit quicker. And I actually noticed a post from David Warner, the Australian cricketer, who said, has anyone noticed that their iPhones haven't been getting much battery life lately? And of course, he's got a lot of followers on social media, more for his cricket prowess, not for his technical skills, but lots of people made similar comments to say that they'd noticed as well. You had some people doing some measurements on there, people getting temperatures between 27 degrees Celsius and up to 37 degrees Celsius. That seems quite warm to me, 37 for a phone, which you would hope is sitting there and dissipating its heat and it's generating some heat inside because it's obviously got some pretty cool technology in there, but you want that dissipated fairly well. Apple actually said that it was some apps that were interacting with iOS 17. So Instagram, Uber, for example, a couple of their apps were generating more heat and using up battery. So Instagram's already released a new version of their app to try and mitigate some of these issues. And it's interesting, if I'm an app maker, I don't want a new iOS that comes out to suddenly have a negative impact on my app. I shouldn't have to be the one that releases a new version of my app. Apple hasn't released, as of the date of this recording, hasn't released a new version of the iOS yet, but they will do that. And it's interesting, isn't it? They've said, they've come out and said it's not the titanium in the iPhone 15 that's causing the issue. It's nothing to do with the new design. It is the iOS. So they've done that. But we talked recently about in France, a new version of the iOS was going to come out to suit French regulators about too much radiation that they were measuring coming out of the phone. Now we've got something that overheats. So in the code of an operating system, in the millions of lines of code, it doesn't take much for just a little thing to go not quite right. What's in there, I mean, it's a pretty big job. 
phones are overheating. Hey, Jimmy, in the programming iOS department, can you fix that problem? Sure, I'll just spend the weekend looking through millions of lines of code and work out where it is. Mm. The troubleshooting of that problem is obviously a big deal. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly don't know where you would start. Where do you start looking for reduction in battery life with new iOS? Heating up with new iOS? What's doing? There's obviously some background process that's running there that I've got to identify. And then once I identify the background process, I've then got to go and work out where the code's different to the old IS that's causing this problem. Yeah, Yeah, I know. And I've actually, I I, I got the privilege one day when I was over visiting Microsoft headquarters and they were working on a new operating system at the time. And I said, oh, cool, can I sit down? And I sat down in front of one of the computers that was actually literally being used for the program. This is right down on the the bowels of Microsoft. And I said, I'll grab a photo for me. And yeah, we can't show the screen on the photo because we can't let lines of code out. That's fine. Mm. And I put my hands over the keyboard to pretend I was programming. (laughs) And (laughs) I just just about got tackled away from the keyboard. Don't touch that code. Like, yeah, so, okay, I'll just sit here with my hands on my lap and have the photo taken (laughs) smiling nicely with the back of of a screen there so you can't see the code. So, you know, there's some special people down there that are doing this programming. They would probably love this challenge, love this problem, Apple probably doesn't love the problem, but it just gives you an idea of how complex our world is now when just a new iOS suddenly changes Mm. the basic behaviour of a phone. And this is some of the issues that people have with electric vehicles that are basically a computer on wheels. You've got a bunch of programming, a bunch of code that's running that. It's not a good old physical, there's a car with a steering wheel that's physically connected by rods and by pinion wheels or gears to the wheels you've got all this software fly-by-wire all that's running this and so that's the concern for a lot of people absolutely and that folks is that for another week the guy with the jangly keys has arrived he's going to throw open the door and we're free to leave Mm-mm, you can smell the freedom Thanks for another sterling tech talk, Matt. And we're going to leave at the speed of Steve Austin. Yes, in fact. One more reference. <laughs> I'm off to get myself one of those exosprint suits right now to test it out. You'll hear me coming down the footpath making noises like Steve Austin the whole way. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson is brought to you by Matt and I, but mainly Matt, pretty much every week. And that's pretty much it. We love it and we hope you do too. In fact, we hope you enjoyed today's episode enough to flick it to a friend and spread the good word. I'm James Eddy, wishing you a wonderful week to come. Looking forward to catching you next week. See you then.